And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at Godzilla vs. Megalon, the classic Showa Godzilla movie with my very good friend and Megalon super friend, Mr. Joe Butler. And hope everybody enjoys uh, today's episode. We're going to be taking a look at uh, another Godzilla movie, but we're going a little bit more modern as we are looking at the second animated Godzilla film, Godzilla City on the Edge of Battle. Very excited to take a look at that film. But before we get to that, we do have some news to cover, so let's go ahead and get right into it. Newly announced, we have the film Yuzo, The Biggest Battle in Tokyo. This is the new film from filmmaker Yoshikazu Ishii, who is a former special effects apprentice, Koichi Kawakita, and also the director of the film Attack of the Giant Teacher. Now, Yuzo seems to be in the same comedic vein as Attack of the Giant Teacher. The story involves a man named Yuzo being laid off due to the coronavirus pandemic, who is then pressed into service when an extraterrestrial life form attacks Tokyo. Now, no information yet on when it will be completed or released, although a lot of these independent films from Japan have wound up at SRS Cinema lately, so perhaps that will be the potential outlet for this film. The monster looks really sharp. Um, but that's about all we've seen so far, so for now we'll have to wait to hear more about the film as it develops, and hat tip to Sci-Fi Japan, uh, which is where I first saw this news. In merchandise news, Diamond Select has released their Godzilla 1974 figural bank, uh, standing apparently six and a half inches tall and about 18 inches from nose to tail. This bank depicts the King of the Monsters as seen in Godzilla vs. Megagodzilla, appropriately from 1974. Figures made of vinyl, similar to the other Diamond Select Bank, so it's not a super soft vinyl, but it's it's pretty close, and has a coin slot in his back. Now, what intrigued me about this particular bank, because Diamond's done a few of these over the years, a few of these figural banks, is the almost, uh, the eyes are like really big, almost bug eyes, which to me, with the 1974 body, it's like one could in fact use this as an imposter Godzilla if they were so uh, inclined instead of regular Godzilla. So if you are interested, the bank can be found on Diamond's website, uh, along with any other uh, outlets that use the Diamond previews code, I believe you can order it, and has a retail price of $39.99. Now in some other a bit higher-end merchandise news, Stern has announced their new Godzilla pinball table. It's available in pro, premium, and limited edition versions, and this machine looks to be just chock-full of pinball action, which is very typical for Stern. A whole bevy of monsters are featured on the back back glass, play surface, and side panels, including Godzilla, naturally, but also Mothra, King Ghidorah, Gigan, Mechagodzilla, Megalon, Ibra, and Titanosaurus. 
Now, in addition, Stern says the game includes Blue Oyster Cult's classic song, Godzilla, as well as a new game feature called the Magna Grab, which can magnetically grab pinballs from five different paths, and they show this on the trailer. It's very cool looking. Game also is the first to feature Stern's new Insider Connected system, which is a QR code reader on the table itself, which allows players to connect with the game. Although the details of what exactly that means for a player experience is not clear, hasn't really been announced. It also appears that you can use this as an owner to get metrics and maybe maintenance information on the game as well, which is very cool. Table looks absolutely incredible, especially for me as a big-time pinball fan. Pricing starts at $68.99.99. That's right, so $6,900. Uh, go to sternpinball.com for more information. Very cool table. Uh, I do not have the ability to have a pinball table in my house. Otherwise, this one might uh, might have a spot there. I, I Stern makes an Iron Man table, at least they did at one time, which was fantastic. So I'd love to get an opportunity to play this Godzilla pinball. Finally, we do have some sad news, as there recently were two deaths, which touched on the Daikaiju community. First was Mazanari Nihai, best known to Tokusatsu fans for playing Ide on the original Ultraman, who passed away on August 21st due to complications from aspiration pneumonia. Nihai was 81 years old. In addition to Ultraman, Nihai also appeared in several other Ultra shows in small roles, and he also appeared in films including Mothra and Gorath. Very sad to hear about his passing, but I will say his performance as Ide will live in Daikaiju lore forever, the beloved character and performance. Uh, as Ide. Secondly, Wataru Mimura, who was a screenwriter for several Godzilla films in the 90s and 2000s, passed away on August 26. No cause of death has been reported, although although it is believed that Mimura had been suffering some health issues over the last few years. Mimura was 67 years old. And Mimura helped guide Godzilla through two really distinct eras in his history, writing um, the back, basically the back half of the Heisei films and a good portion of the Millennium films. And again, his contributions to the genre will live on forever because of, of those films and uh, all the impact that the Godzilla character has had with those films. So very sad to hear about those passings. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, that is what we get sometimes. So it, do you have any Daikaiju or Tokusatsu-related news? Send it in, Directive at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear from you, and we'll give you credit here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to talk about Godzilla City on the Edge of Battle right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the Fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanhole soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla, City on the Edge of Battle. The Japanese title is Gojira Kesenkido 
Zoshoku Toshi, literally Godzilla Battle Mobile Proliferation City, was produced by Toho Animation and animated by Polygon Pictures, and is the second entry in the trilogy of animated Godzilla films. Film was released to Japanese theaters on May 18th, 2018, and became available to stream worldwide via Netflix on July 18th, 2018. Uh, our writers, we have three credited writers. First, our story credit is uh, Gen Urobochi. Urobochi has numerous Japanese sci-fi writing credits, including the animes Psycho Pass and Fate Slash Zero, as well as a tokusatsu common writer, Gaim. Uh, and he is credited with the story. I believe he has a story credit on all of the uh, animated films. Uh, our first writer credit is uh, Sadayuki Murai. Uh, Murai has many anime writing credits as well, including Cowboy Bebop, Space Pirate Herlock, the 2003 version of Astro Boy, Spaceship, uh, excuse me, Space Battleship Yamato 2199, Juni Tyson, and Knights of Sidonia. He also has credits for writing on Ultraman Dyna and Ultraman Nexus, as well as the previous film, Planet of the Monsters. The final writing credit is Tetsuya Yamada, and Yamada, there's less information that I was able to find on him, although he has worked uh, on Knights of Sidonia and Juni Tyson, along with Val X Love, so it looks like he and uh, Murai have worked together in the past. Uh, our directors are Kobun Shizuno and Hiroyuki Sashida. They are co-directors of all three of the Godzilla anime films. Uh, Shizuno has many directorial credits on very, various anime projects, well, Sashida has credits as varied, uh, as everything is varied from art director on Final Fantasy The Spirits Within to visual effects director on the film Big Man Japan. So he's kind of done all sorts of different things. And our producer is Takashi Yoshizawa, who produced all three of the Godzilla anime films, as well as is being the producer of the, uh, the, the much more recent Godzilla Singular Point anime, which uh, recently debuted on Netflix a few months back. Uh, all right, so I have written the synopsis here, so we're going to run through the synopsis, and then we will uh, get into notes discussing the film. And so our story goes a little something like this. Shortly after the events of the first film, you can go back to the archives to find where we covered that one, the crew of the ship Eritrum debates on how to proceed, deciding to wait 48 hours for any sign of survivors on the surface. On the Earth's surface, Commander Haru Sakaki wakes up in a simple hut, seemingly being cared for by a primitive girl living on Earth. Haru is unable to communicate with the girl as she can mimic his words but not understand them. Soon, Haru finds other survivors, including Yuko, Belu, Be, and Adam, under attack from a native girl identical to the one aiding him, and the entire group finds themselves held by the indigenous people. They are then taken to the native's cavernous home, where they are reunited with Lazari and Galugu, among others, although there is no sign of Metaphys. The two native girls lead the survivors into a large cave. Here, the twins telepathically communicate to the survivors, informing them that their people are called the Hautua, and question why they brought fire from the sky. Haru explains that they only want to kill Godzilla, which the Hautua react positively towards, Godzilla being the enemy of their god, referred to only as the Egg. The Hautua treat the wounded, and the team are allowed to leave to find a landing ship with which to contact the Aratrum, accompanied by the twins. The sight of the landing ship soon turns into a battlefield as worm-type servum attack the team. The twins are able to use their bows to drive the servum back, the arrowheads sharp enough to pierce the monster's skin. When several flying servum arrive, a multipodal battery saves a team its pilot revealed to be Metaphys. 
Contacting the Eratrum, the group is ordered to return, but Haru convinces most of them to stay and figure out how to fight and kill Godzilla. The Bilu Salado in the group determine that the Haotua's arrowheads are made of nanometal, the supposedly sentient material which was being used to build their Mechagodzilla weapon. The twins lead the team to the location where the nanometal is harvested, the remains of the Mechagodzilla facility, now dubbed Mechagodzilla City. The city is overrun with nanometal, which has absorbed everything inside, even the corpses of the deceased workers. The Bilu Salado, led by Galagu, program the city to rebuild itself into a command post and begin construction of new assault suits named Vultures, based on the group's lone exosuit. Members of the group which were treated by the Hautua find themselves ill after spending too long in the city. It is theorized that this is due to the powder substance the Hautua secrete from their skin. The Bilu Salado members of the team begin to voluntarily merge themselves with the city, increasing its tactical capabilities by adding the knowledge and intelligence of the Bilu Salado into its neural network. As progress is made, Metaphys tells Haru that he thinks of the city as a monster itself, being birthed by the end of a civilization, much like how his civilization was decimated by a monster. Metaphys whispers a name to Haru, telling Haru that if he is afraid while fighting Godzilla to think of this name instead, which is much more powerful than even Godzilla and should inspire even greater terror. Later, Haru and Yuko share a kiss, and he promises her that she will see Earth as it once was. The plan is formed to kill Godzilla. Similar to the original plan, the monster will be lured to a trap point and forced into a detour tunnel. Once there, liquid nanometal will be poured into the tunnel to trap him. All of the city's firepower will then be turned on Godzilla to overwhelm his force field organ, leaving him vulnerable to the EMP harpoon weapon, allowing the city's armaments to destroy the organ and kill him. No sooner is the plan finalized than Godzilla awakens and begins towards the city. He fires a blast of atomic breath from long range, but the city's defenses are up to the challenge, reflecting the beam's energy into the surrounding hillside. The vultures, pouted by Haru, Yuko, and Baobe, begin harassing Godzilla, driving him towards the trap point and into the detour. The liquid nanometal is released and Godzilla is trapped. The bombardment begins and successfully knocks down Godzilla's shield. The EMP harpoon then pierces Godzilla's hide, and the monster stands motionless, heat and energy building up inside. Despite this, Godzilla does not explode as the previous offspring monster did. Instead, the tremendous heat is a form of attack, raising the city's internal temperature. Galugu merges with the nanometal, willing to pay any price for victory, while Metaphys leads a retreat away from the city. Galugu orders the vultures to use themselves as the weapon, spearing Godzilla with enough speed to destroy the organ and kill him. However, the tremendous heat makes it impossible for the vultures to approach Godzilla. Galugu says they must, quote, repair the susceptible part and orders a forcible merging of the pilots with the nanometal. Bellaby's merging goes smoothly, but the process leaves Yuko near dead. Haru, bizarrely, seems unable to bond with the metal, and it merely oozes off of him. With Galugu and Metaphys yelling in his comms and Yuko suffering, Haru seems paralyzed for a moment, finally grabbing Yuko's vulture with his own and attacking the city's command center, killing Galugu and stopping the nanometal bonding. Bellaby is killed when he tries to stop Haru, and all of the nanometal becomes inert with the destruction of the command center. Godzilla, now free, raises his shield and obliterates Mechagodzilla City with his atomic breath until it sinks into the earth aflame. Haru lands his vulture and sees Yuko, but all he can do is scream in rage as he holds her lifeless body in his hands. We now see again the scene of Metaphys and Haru talking about the battle. 
Metaphys tells Haru that the name of the monster who destroyed his civilization was Ghidorah. Well, that is a heck of a cliffhanger, isn't it? <laughs> Much like the first film, City on the Edge of Battle is, is uh, very different from any live-action Godzilla film and has similarly proven to be divisive to the Godzilla fandom. What did I think of it? Well, let's get right into the notes. Given the cliffhanger of the first film, I really had no idea where things were going to go with this one. In retrospect, while the idea of Mechagodzilla is teased in Planet of the Monsters, the idea of the MG as a city is really quite novel and unique. I can get how that would rub certain fans the wrong way, because, frankly, who doesn't like Godzilla fighting Mechagodzilla? But by going this route, not only do we get a through line to the first film, where humanity is using organization and technology to battle Godzilla, but we also tap directly into what I consider to be a seminal type of story from Japanese historical fiction, the Siege of the Fortress. In the Sengoku era in Japan, castles, or fortresses, were the homes of a daimyo, or a local lord. And when two daimyos were at war, it was not uncommon for one of the castles to be under siege. As such, the defenses and armament of a daimyo's castle was a point of great pride to them, much like we see here with the Bilu Salado's pride in Mechagodzilla City. This is a common set piece in Chanbara film, what we would call a samurai movie here in the West, with one of the most famous examples, of course, being Akira Kurosawa's Ran from 1985. But even in, what's to say, less than A-list samurai films, Ran definitely being an A-list samurai film, uh, the images of invaders attempting to overcome the stalwart defenders on the castle walls is a familiar one if you're a fan of, of samurai films and samurai stories. So using that as the framework on which to hang this story works for me, especially given that this is a Japanese film utilizing a Japanese medium in an anime, so I'm okay with that story and I thought it was very creative. There are some other details in this film which I really enjoyed as well. The Bailu Salado willingly assimilating into the city, giving up their lives to become more efficient, was really well accomplished. Given that the Bailu Salado as a race that wanted to solve the monster problem by creating a really big robot, this fanatical devotion to their technology is understandable, as is the human's disgusted reaction. Take it one step further with the Bilu Salado as an homage to the black hole aliens from the Showa-era Mechagodzilla films. I tied their obsession with technology and the merging of technological and organic life for the pursuit of more efficient ability to wage war with the second one, Terror of Mechagodzilla. Now, I know we haven't covered that, but you'll recall in that film, the Black Hole Aliens, spoiler, implant, implant the controls to Mechagodzilla in the brain of Katsura, improving the response time and security of their machine. Now, the Black Hole Aliens do not themselves merge with their machines, but this struck me as very similar to Galagu telling Haru to repair the susceptible piece and eliminate the weak organic flesh. I liked also that this reconnected with the concept of the first film, that the aliens don't actually care about humanity, instead desiring Earth and its resources. And the Bilu Salado laid that pretty bare here, willing to throw anything and everything into the Mechagodzilla City meat grinder to accomplish their goal. Although, just as an aside, couldn't they have called the nanometal space titanium, or is that what we might call, air quotes up to the mic, 270s? The personage of Godzilla Earth himself is very welcome, even if he only appears in the final half hour or so of the film. He remains so massive that it's really kind of hard to wrap one's head around his size in the context of the humanoid characters. Now, in general, we've seen enough instances of Godzilla and other Toho monsters interacting with humans to understand the scales involved. 
And personally speaking, I have to flash back to our discussions around this very topic in the Marvel Comics uh, series that we covered. But here, with a height of 300 meters, which is nearly 1,000 feet tall, all that gets tossed out the window. This truly is a Godzilla we have never seen before, and likely we'll never see again outside of the context of these films, if I'm being honest. As such, it is a disappointment that we don't get to see him do more. Godzilla here in this film is truly just the other, external force threatening the heroes which must be stopped. We do not get any insights into his character or any real insight if he has any personality at all. Godzilla here is a heavy who exists only for Haru and company to have a target on which to execute their plan. So while the incredible power of his beam gets a fanish thumbs up, I don't feel much towards him as a monster. Say what you will, but in all the live-action Godzilla films, both Japanese and Western, I feel something towards Godzilla as a viewer. Here, he's aloof and cold. Perhaps, you know, given his stature, maybe that's the point? It's a change of pace for sure, and I can see why it doesn't click with certain viewers. Now, as an aside, the idea of Godzilla using his internal heat as a weapon to simply make the area around him a hostile environment for his attackers is a wonderfully science fiction touch. A very unique addition to this version of the character. Easily my favorite Godzilla moment in the film. A great creative choice there, absolutely. I really marked out for that. Now, from a human character standpoint, Haro is once more front and center. He hasn't seemed to change appreciably over the course of the film. I still think we are seeing him grow from these trials that he's undergoing. I like his resolve to stay the course and take back the Earth, despite the, you know, frankly ridiculous odds they are now facing with Godzilla Earth. I especially like his indecision in the final battle, which leads to the destruction of Mechagodzilla City and seemingly the death of Yuko. Could he have saved her if he acted sooner? That's a good question. His rage and pain in that final scene are palpable to me. Of course, I did like the intrigue of why the nanometal didn't affect him. I suspect it is due to the ministrations of the Hautua, but hopefully the next one will reveal those answers. But for too long of the running length, Haru is flatly presented, almost one note as motivation and character. It's a common criticism leveled at anime, really animation in general, that characters exhibit only a couple of traits and are painted broadly, and Haru lives up to that criticism here. Whether that's a fair criticism or not, I leave to others more, uh, you know, more well-versed in anime, but I have heard that leveled at it. I never feel much for Haru until the end, even though he and his team are in peril, you know, quite often through the film. I mean, sure, there is great dramatic tension during the preparations of the defenses of the city and the execution of the plan as Godzilla attacks, but that tension comes from a procedural place rather than a character place. That is, I'm tense because I want to see if the plan will work, if they can trap and kill Godzilla. I am not tense because I'm worried about the safety of Haru or Yuko or any of these humanoids. They end up more as just pieces on the board, move from location to location as necessary, in service of the overall story, which is driven procedurally by the plot. Now please don't misunderstand me, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm a huge fan of procedural stories, especially in literature. But I do not think I'm telling a fib when I say that none of these characters, not Haru, Yuka, Berubi, Metaphys, any of them, really earn my affections or ire in this film until that last reel. I already mentioned Haru and his actions, but I also need to mention, I think, that Galagoo betraying the humans to bond them with the nanometal is pretty low down and dirty. Definitely from the, you know, villains think they are the heroes of the story school of thought. But overall, again, very similar to the first film, the plot is the star above the characters this time out, at least for me as a viewer. The Hotu are an interesting addition to the overall story of the trilogy. 
Now, they're obviously an analog to the infant island natives from the Showa era, including the two twins as an updated version of the Shobajin. The Hotua are presented in a similar way, only without the direct involvement of Mothra. While their god, the egg, is mentioned, every other time the Shobajin or natives of infant island are included in a story, Mothra plays an active role. The choice here serves to tease the audience more about what might be coming in the next installment, rather than serving the needs of this film. I like the explanation of the Hotua being evolutionary descendants of insects, further solidifying the Mothra connection, but this is not well addressed, left more as a side mystery than anything else. What was their evolutionary origin? How do they survive on the wildly different environment that is Earth? We don't get those answers here, and unfortunately, for me, it makes those scenes feel disconnected from the main thrust of the story. We don't learn much about them, and once the team finds Mechagodzilla City, they essentially leave the story. So on the whole, while the how are intriguing as a concept, they didn't do much for me in the grand scheme of things. Hopefully the third film will give them more of an opportunity to shine. You know, and that again gets back to something I said during the first film. Taken on their own, these films, you know, play a certain way. When you know they're part of a trilogy, it changes the level of expectations that you have and the understanding of the overall amount of story that you're going to get. In the same vein, similar to the first film, the pacing here leaves me feeling out of sorts somewhat. It's 101 minutes, and I wonder if this would have worked better as three 30-minute episodes rather than one feature. The first act of the film, with the Hautua, comes off as slower than what follows, not really getting out of the blocks while it takes its time to get going. Things pick up for me once they find Mechagodzilla City, and the preparations for and then the actual battle really kept my interest. I suppose that is a function of anime in general, at least for me as a Westerner, as I often have trouble with anime feature lengths versus shorter episodes. Maybe that's just how I'm used to consuming anime as a Westerner. Would this have worked better if the How To Us stuff was on its own episode, finding and prepping the city a second episode, and then the battle a third? Maybe. But, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I then would have to imagine that we'd simply have complaints that, quote, episode four or whatever was pointless, boring setup, so who knows. I mean, as it stands, City on the Edge of the City on the Edge of Battle, it's in line with Planet of the Monsters, not a huge departure from how that film is paced, and considering the creative staff that are shared between the, the these two films and the next one, that's that's expected and understood. Visually, the animation, very similar to what we got from the first film, CGI executed by Polygon Pictures. I really enjoyed the animation once again. I liked it in the first film, and I liked it here. Characters move well, the environments look really feasible and well-designed, and the machines, as a rule, look really sharp. The design choices, they're a bit more varied this time out, as we do get some new environments with the Hotua Caves and the Mechagodzilla City. And there is still the issue of some characters being hard to differentiate. To be frank, the, the Bailusolato all start to look alike to me in some scenes, but that's relatively minor. It happens when you've got a lot of characters wearing uniform, and the Bailusolato, they don't have the variations in height and skin tone and hair color that we get with the humans. So that that is, maybe it's just a, a function of, of the way that they're designed. Godzilla looks fantastic. I mean, absolutely fantastic. Again, taking advantage of the use of animation to present us with a, a Godzilla, that which would be really close to impossible to do in tokusatsu. And if you're going to do anime, do anime. You know what I'm saying? Now, there is a lot of scuttlebutt that I read online uh, about the color palette that the colors of the actual Netflix release were either, quote, washed out or, quote, muted, compared to the colors seen in promotional images or early footage releases. 
now, I'm not an expert on such things. And in fact, I've gone on record on both this show and many other shows as saying that a lot of high-end visual discussions are kind of lost on me because my eyesight is only so good. I mean, I can tell the difference sometimes between a DVD and a Blu-ray, but you start talking, well, the 4K here versus... I, I, am, I can't hang with it because I have a hard time sometimes differentiating visually the differences. Um, but for what it's worth, I can see the thought process here when presented with side-by-side -side screen caps uh, with different um, with different levels of color intensity. I think it's actually Gojipedia has a fairly in-depth uh, section on this where they show, here's what that image looked like in the promotional reel, here's what it looks like in the Netflix. And you can see a level of different color intensity. Now, whether one coloring is better than another, I think that's a personal preference. I cannot discuss or review something which does not exist so all I can say is that as presented, I think the film is quite beautiful and striking. Personally, I think it looks even better than its predecessor on the visuals because we get a few more varied stuff with some of the environments on Earth. So I really like it. Now, if you like the, you know, the, the more vibrant versions that you can find in those screen caps, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I can only talk about the one that actually exists. You know, that's that's just me. Now, overall, sitting on the edge of battle, it's a mixed bag of a film. You know, visually, it is really Really nice to look at. Well-executed animation, very exciting set pieces. It grows the story established by the first film and takes it in a new direction. I think does a really great job of ratcheting up the tension in the second half, and then delivers on that tension with the final battle. Now, these positives, they're hampered, though. They've hampered by an uneven pace. It makes the film drag in spots in that first half, coupled with a, a real sense of detachment since none of these characters really ingratiate themselves that well to the viewer until the very end of the film. Now, ultimately, this is a film which, you know, I think has earned its divisive nature. And personally, I fall more on the positive side of the fence. I can just as easily see how both fans and newcomers alike would be turned off by the film. Now, for me, overall, the good outweighs the eh, not so good. And I think it's definitely worth watching. Assuming you've seen the first one, of course... Go watch that first one. If you haven't seen and if you haven't seen Planet of the Monsters, don't watch Sitting Edge of Battle. I'm just saying. Now, if you want to own Godzilla City on the Edge of Battle, well, here in the States, you're pretty much out of luck, as it is not available for purchase, still only streaming on Netflix. Now, there is both a Japanese DVD and Blu-ray release, but uh, both of those lack English subtitles, so they will be less useful, I imagine, for a lot of listeners to this show. I'm not saying listeners to this show don't speak Japanese, but as I speak English, I have to assume at least a fair number of my uh, listeners also uh, speak English. So if you want to watch, head on over to Netflix. Uh, you know, if you don't have Netflix, I'm sure, I'm sure you know somebody that does, right? <laughs> so I, I throw it now to you, the listener. What do you think? Is City on the Edge of Battle a worthy entry into the Godzilla mythos, or is it and its animated brethren destined to sink into the earth in a pit of fire? Write in and let me know. We're at DestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. We can talk about it here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with some listener feedback here on Earth Destruction Directive. Two true freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, 
for Pop Culture Affidavit, The Sworn Testimony of a Dork at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And it is now time for a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at irkdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. Just listen to the outro to the show and you'll get all the information. So let's get right into our feedback. Our first email comes from loyal listener Rich S., And Rich writes in with the subject, Prince of Monsters. Hi, Luke. I just downloaded and listened to your latest Ultraman episode and just had to write in. Gomera has always been a favorite of mine since childhood and was great to hear your analysis of his episodes. I distinctly remember as a child my brother laughing at the Gomera tale going on its rampage after being separated, as well as me aghast yet thrilled to see the castle get demolished. That particular landmark was certainly like catnip for kaiju back in the 1960s. Yes, Osaka Castle does get destroyed a lot, doesn't it? Very nice indeed. Uh, Rich continues, as I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, my parents would from time to time buy me toys from Chinatown. Most they would save for Christmas. But one summer, they sprang some Ultra toys on me to my utter delight. Besides a die-cast Balton with Gatling Missile Launcher. What? That sounds awesome. (laughs) Rich continues, was an awesome Gomera toy. I've since sold Balton, but Gomera still stands guard in my basement along with other die-cast kaiju and super robots. Other items in the lineup from this toy series include King Joe, Red King, and Black King, which I always yearned for from seeing images on the back of the toy box. I'm sending you a photo of the Gomorrah toy I write of, but much better images can be seen in the book Super Number One Robot Japanese Robot Toys 1972-1982, a must for fans of Asian toys. And this Gomorrah toy is incredible. I am going to be linking this. I'm going to put this up um, on uh, on Facebook or and link to it in the show notes because this is this robot Gomorrah some you know, 40 years before we actually had a Mecha Gomera in the Ultra series is beautiful. And I love that sort of in Jet Jaguar colors, too. And this is incredible, Rich. This is an amazing toy. I've never seen anything like this. Thank you so much for sharing this. I have got to share this with the lift. This is, this is fantastic. Uh, Rich continues, by the way, there is a newish Mill Creek Blu-ray that does have the Gomera episodes in English. It is the Birth of Ultraman collection and is now on Amazon for order. It only has a few episodes, but it is out there for completion fans like us. A second round of English dub episodes are in the Secrets of the Rise of Ultraman Blu-ray, and that should be available soon. I look forward to more kaiju goodness from your podcast. Keep up the good work, Rich S. Rich, first off, thank you very much for writing in. I really appreciate that picture of that Mecha Gomera is insane. And you are absolutely right. I didn't even think of those Mill Creek releases because I don't have those. Um, those releases, the what they really are is anytime Mill Creek can get a hold of English dubs that they are allowed to release, that's what are going on those special sets. And that, that Birth of Ultraman, that one, I want to say it has the cover like the Alex Ross painting to uh, Rise of Ultraman number one, I think. And it has, uh, so that one, yeah, you can definitely find those, and they do have the English dubs on there. I forgot all about those when I was talking about that episode, so thank you very much for pointing that out. And again, thank you for sending in that Mecha Gomer, Rich, and I appreciate your patronage and your listening. I know you've been listening to the show for a long time, and uh, you are, are very, I'm very glad to have you on board, and I hope you're continuing to enjoy the show. Our next email comes from Robert Ludwig, 
the most sane man among us. And Robert writes with the subject, episode 93, Godzilla vs. Kong movie review. Hi, Luke. Also, a hello to Jason, since he was on the show. Just a few notes on the show discussing Godzilla vs. Kong. My son really wanted to see this, and so did I, but due to his schedule, 13-year-old in soccer and swim club and school, I hear you, Robert. I hear you. I've been there, man. I'm there right now. I'm there right now. Uh, the watch was going to have to be on DVD, or so I thought. While visiting my parents over the Independence Day holiday, there was a, quote, cheap theater, $2.50 tickets. That is pretty cheap nowadays, all things considered, Robert. That was still showing the movie in Omaha, Nebraska, so we got to go and included my dad, who introduced me to Kong and Godzilla when I was growing up. The theater had maybe ten people in it, of which four was my family, all spread out. This led to me listening to about half the show prior to seeing the movie and about the other half of the show after seeing the movie. I didn't care about spoilers because if it would have been months prior to seeing the movie, I would have forgotten most of them. Anyway, here are my thoughts. One, Josh, this character annoyed me. I really wished that the bringing the van, he would have been done. Yes, yes, absolutely. If she gets in the driver's seat and drives off in the van and Josh is just standing there, I'd applause, riotous applause. Absolutely. That's, that's my fan edit right there. Number two, Warbat. Awesome! That is all. Agreed. Warbat was fantastic for a little one-shot pop-up monster. Never found that Warbat toy. Never found the Warbat toy. Did find a skull crawler that Jay sent me, but uh, never found Warbat is pretty fantastic. Number three, Mia hated her, which I was supposed to. I cheered when she was killed. You and me both, my friend. She got hers. I mean, it's like, like I said, it's like, oh, she seems like a real peach, right? When she shows up, so good to see that. Number four, working together versus Mechagodzilla. I was happy when they worked together. Their non-verbals were great, and I cheered when they worked together, too. Love when Godzilla charged the axe for Kong. That was when I realized the axe head was a Godzilla scale. Yeah, that, that bit of them working together. You know, I, I think I may say this on the episode. It is, maybe it's it's a little cliche that the two monsters are going to fight and then they got to team up. But, you know, as I say and get back to the wrestling, it's not rocket science, it's pro wrestling, and, and that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. I, too, like them working together and them coming to a sort of grudging respect at the end that, you know, you keep your distance, I'll keep mine, and we just don't worry about this anymore, man. Very, very much uh, a great bit, and I'm glad it, it struck home for you as well. Five. Also, the movie showed us that both were thinking monsters. Kong was shown throughout to be a thinking monster, but the end showed that Godzilla thinks too. He accepted the he accepted easy for me to say the help from Kong, and he helped charge the axe. In, and he helped charge the axe, and in the end, he left Kong be. Yeah, I agree with that. Godzilla in the the uh, legendary films, he he has something going on. He's not just an engine of destruction like he can be sometimes in. Uh, some of the the uh, earlier films. He, there's some there's some thought going on with the legendary Godzilla. I agree with that. I think the film did do a good job of that. Number six, Alex Skarsgård. Not sure on the spelling. Got a huge Chris Pratt vibe off of him. Wondering if anybody else did too. I've seen Alex Skarsgård in a few things. I think he played Tarzan, doesn't he? In the Legend of Tarzan, the one with Margot Robbie and Samuel Jackson. I mean, I thought he did fine, and he certainly has that sort of you know good looking light touch that uh, Chris Pratt has. I don't know if he's... I'd have to ask my wife if he's as cute as Chris Pratt. I mean, the ladies do love Chris Pratt, right? But uh, I can I can definitely see that. I don't know that I made that specific connection, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to noodle on that one a bit. Uh, Robert continues, Anyway, thank you for all the shows that you do, Luke. I really enjoy them and learn so much. 
I have learned about so many monsters, Ultraman, and the different comic books. My personal favorite is the comic book reviews, but enjoy everything. Keep them stomping. Hashtag Team Kong, Robert Ludwig. Robert, thank you very much, first off, for writing in, and I'm glad you're enjoying the show. As far as comics, we do have some comics coming next year. In fact, right now I was uh, kind of looking at the schedule January. We're going to be covering some comics again, and I'm hoping to get some more comics mixed in next year. There's been a lot of good Daikaiju comics coming out, both some uh, some uh, stuff from Marvel with the two Ultraman minis, and uh, some stuff from IDW with the new Godzilla books. We've got, um, uh, you know, Kaiju Score, which was an independent title, and uh, we're, we should be getting more Stomped, I think, in 2022 as well. Remember, we covered Stomped at the beginning of this year from Ross Radke, so hopefully we'll get some more comics. And I enjoy doing the comics. You know, it's a change of pace. Plus, I can read them at my own pace, you know. I can go and just, you know, sit down and I only read for 10 minutes at a clip, I only read for 10 minutes at a clip, you know. But thank you very much, Robert, for writing in. Really appreciate hearing from you. Uh, our last email for today is from my brother, Jason Giaconetti. And the subject is G versus G. And Jay writes, Luke, after listening to your latest episode covering Gamera 2, Advent of Legion, it made me think about the age-old question, could we ever see Gamera versus Godzilla? Now, I know it might be impossible, but we never say never. But could, in this day and age of money-making things happen, could we be in a place where it could happen? A souped-up Gamera facing a New Age Godzilla would be bank. Do I think it will happen? Nope. But anything seems possible these days. I agree with that. You know, I, I, there, I mean, ten years ago, I could have said they'd never remake King Kong vs. Godzilla. In fact, that always was top of my list of movies that deserved to be remade. And here we are with a big-budget remake of King Kong vs. Godzilla. So who knows what can happen? You know, who knows what adventures these monsters will have between now when the series are no longer deemed profitable, right? Jay continues, I know this is not super helpful, but I know I'm not alone. I mean, would it be great to see this super fight? Of course. I would love to see them go toe-to-toe. But if not Godzilla, then maybe a modern Gamera facing a, quote, mechanical gorilla. Or a, quote, mechanical lizard king could also be great. I do like that thought. Well, we'll... We'll boulderize it a little bit, change it just enough so that, you know, you squint at it, you know, just enough to satisfy the lawyers. That said, Gamera fighting a giant robot would really be something, because he doesn't fight a lot of robots. You know, I mean, he fights UFOs on occasion, but he mostly just fights monsters. So Gamera fighting a robot, especially a, a robot Kong of some kind, or perhaps a robot tyrant lizard of some kind, that would be, that would be bank, as you say. I'd be on board with that for sure. Jay continues, well, I will stop now because then I'm opening more cans of worms and answering any questions. Thank you for all your great shows and keep up the great work. Keep them stomping, Jason. Jay, thank you very much for writing in. I appreciate your patronage. I appreciate you listening to the show. Yeah, I mean, Gamera versus Godzilla, that's one of those things that it's 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 the fan, ultimate fan wank, right? You know, you always have to have that in the back of your mind. Could you, if you did that, would it ever live up to the hype? That's the thing, you know? Could, could you do those monsters against each other and, and live up to it? That, that would be the question. Because to me, you have to have Gamera as the hero. Gamera is always the hero, right? So kind of like we got with Godzilla versus Kong, where, you know, you'd have Godzilla playing the villainous role and Gamera playing the heroic role, kind of like Kong did. So I could see that. But man, I got to say, the Heisei Gamera, oh, that's going to be tough to beat in a fight. That is going to be tough to beat in a fight. That is all I have to say on that. Jay, thank you again for writing in and uh, hope to hear from you again in the future. Social media, love, likes, shares, retweets, um, hearts, all that good stuff for the last episode came from Jason Giaconetti. 
The Telltale Mind, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, The Fan Holes Podcast, the aforementioned Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, 21st Century Boys, History of Comics on Film, that's Derek W.C. from The Fan Holes, The Daily Dune Patrol Haiku, Professor Allen, Steady Riot 665, Bro Rad, Two True Freaks, The Weird Warriors Podcast, Max Reads Comics, Bodo Winter, Ross Radke, Doctor Strange, a.k.a. Billy D., Chuck Rodriguez, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Mr. Lomax, Tim Elliott, Scott Rifen, Darren Sutherland, Gene Hendricks, Brian Severe, Robert Ward, Joe Butler, Matt Holland, John Vanover, Brian Hughes, and Colleen Alexander. Thank you, everyone, for all of that social media love, helping getting the word out there about Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, you know, we say it all the time, that social media interaction, it's great fun, and I love to see it out there. So thank you very much, everybody, for that. Uh, in addition, I would like to take this opportunity, of course, to say that Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. If you uh, find any joy in the Japanese giant monster fandom. You are welcome to engage with the show in any way that you would like to interact, to listen, to feedback, however you want to get in touch with me. It's all appreciated. All are welcome at Earth Destruction Directive. But now that we have come to the end of this episode, we have to, as always, look forward. And what shall, what's that on the horizon? What is that weird-looking thing stomping toward us the next time out? We're going to be taking a look at one of the most bizarre Daikaiju movies of the Showa era. And those of you who have been with us for a while know that is not a statement I make lightly. We are taking a look at the X from Outer Space, featuring the monster Giala. And this... Whoo, this is an oddball one now. I've got a special guest lined up. I'm not going to tell you who that guest is just in case uh, things don't work out. But come on back next time. We're going to be talking about the X from Outer Space. Hope everybody enjoyed this episode talking about City on the Edge of Battle. And I hope you'll join us again. And so until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2truefreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name E-D-D. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at Jacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod, downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.